Hello, neighbor. Welcome back to Mojave Memories. Stories and essays written by Annalise Cooper. Music and editing done by Cattell Byers. We're glad you joined us here in North Joshua Tree on Copper Mountain Mesa. But before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsor. This podcast was created using the Anchor app. Anchor is a free podcast platform that allows anyone to record their own podcast free of charge. So even if you're not an audio engineer, this free and easy to use app makes it simple. The Anchor app even distributes your podcast for you for free. So go to anchor.fm and download the app today to get started for free. Hi, this is Annalise, and today we are going to listen to one of my stories out of my book, Memory Dam. This one's called Apache Tears, and it's about my daughter, Mary, and how she came into my life and the incredible challenges she had to undergo. And uh, here we go. The phone rang late one Wednesday afternoon. It was my 16-year-old friend, Mary whom I had met two days after her mother died, four years ago. She wanted to come over, and while I hesitated because I was tired, I agreed to let her visit us. Mary and her father, John, had lived with me off and on when they needed a place to stay, until I got so sick and tired of John that I kicked him out. Mary went with him, but continued to come over frequently. I loved Mary as if she were my own daughter, and I knew that the living circumstances her father provided for her were totally inadequate. Since Mary's mother died, they had moved around, staying with different people, never having a home of their own. Recently, they had been living in an eight-foot camper using a bucket as a toilet, and Mary shared an old mattress with her dad. I always wondered if the relationship between Mary and her father was healthy, but when I'd asked Mary in the past, she always vehemently denied any wrongdoing on her father's part. Mary walked the two miles across the desert to my house, and when she arrived, I could tell she was very agitated. Soon after her arrival, our neighbor Robert showed up. Mary was living with her father in Robert's camper on Robert's land. I could see that Robert, who was in his late 30s, was very fond of Mary, and they told me they wanted to get married just as soon as she turned 18. He treated Mary with respect, although I couldn't see them getting married. They both insisted they had never been sexual together and were going to wait until they got married in two years. After we went inside the house, I made a cup of tea and we chatted for a while. Then Mary took me into the office and started to talk. My father has been touching me down there ever since I can remember, she told me. Then when I got older, he started doing more. And I never told my mom because my dad told me that she would hate me if she knew what I was letting him do to me. He said it was all my fault because I was just too beautiful and he couldn't stop himself. After mom died, when we were living with you, Dad never touched me or did anything except just treat me like a regular daughter. Then when we moved out of your house, he started touching me again and now he's trying to do more and I don't know how much longer I can stop him. 
I'm scared, Annalise, and I don't know what to do. I'm scared he'll kill me and anyone else who tries to help me. You know how crazy he is. Her beautiful Apache face was wet with tears and her mouth was distorted with grief. Yes, I do know how crazy he is, I replied. Mary's father had been in the US Army for 22 years and had served in Vietnam with a special forces unit. He had been trained to be a killing machine and even though he was now old and gray, his body was still graceful and his hands had an iron grip. I had seen him have flashbacks many times. He would prowl around my house and property, convinced that we were about to be ambushed and killed. I could certainly understand Mary's fear, and I was scared too. So even though I know American policemen to be very insensitive, Mary, Robert and I got in my car and drove to the local police station, leaving Jim, Eric and Cody at home. I had told Mary's father I would have her home by eight o'clock, and it was almost eight by the time we got to the police station. I was extremely nervous about not taking Mary home on time and was afraid her father would go to my home and harm my beloved family. I was not sure if he had a gun, but I knew it was a possibility. I parked the car and the three of us walked up to the sheriff's office. A blast of freezing cold air hit us as we walked inside. The floor was a rust-colored tile and a row of chairs was parked against the left wall. The right side of the room was bulletproof glass behind which a woman could be seen talking on the phone and looking at a computer screen. We stepped up to the glass and I placed my mouth close to the hole to ask the woman at the phone if we could see a policeman. What seems to be the problem, the woman asked, not appearing to be terribly interested. Robert and I looked at Mary and she stepped up to the hole in the glass. I need to talk to a police officer about my dad, Mary said, her voice trembling and her eyes downcast. About your dad, asked the woman behind the glass. Yes, said Mary into the hole. Why, what did he do, demanded the woman, glaring at Mary. He's been abusing me, replied Mary in a very quiet voice. Huh, said the woman. Mary repeated herself. Your dad's been abusing you, asked the woman. How? He's been sexually molesting me since I was a little girl, replied Mary, her voice scarcely above a whisper. Huh? demanded the woman. You have to speak into the hole in the glass and speak up. I can't hear you. I became angry. I'd push my mouth up very close to the hole, looking the woman behind the glass squarely in the eye. This is so insensitive, I said. I can't believe you're making this child speak to you about matters so painful and personal through a hole in the glass. Don't you have a private room where this young lady can speak to a nice police officer instead of out here in this freezing cold place where everyone can hear everything she says except you? The woman behind the glass softened visibly and made a real effort to smile at Mary. The woman told us to take a seat and that she would get a deputy sheriff to come talk to us. Mary sat down between Robert and I and looked at us with wide brown eyes. What do you think they're going to do, she asked us. 
I don't want my dad to go to jail. I don't want him to get into any trouble over this. I just want him to stop. I just want him to be my daddy and treat me like his daughter. I don't want to be his wife. And I want him to stop treating me like he owns me. I want to come and live with you and go to school and have friends and be happy. That's all I want. Mary's shoulders shook as she cried into a snotty paper towel. I looked at her, marveling at her strength and courage, awed by her ability to love her father despite everything he'd done. I don't know what they're going to do, Mary, I replied, but I think we're doing the right thing. He's always threatening to take me to Arizona or Montana, where no one will find us, so that we can be together always, said Mary, and I don't want to go. I want to stay near you guys, and I want to be able to see my grandma. My dad's been keeping me away from her because he doesn't want me to be close to her. He gets jealous or something. I don't know. We continued to wait for what seemed like days. Then a blonde police officer came in to interview Mary. He asked her what was going on and she told him, looking at the floor the entire time. In an impersonal tone, the police officer asked Mary, so how come you didn't get pregnant if your dad was penetrating you? When Mary shrugged her shoulders, shook her head and wrapped her arms around herself, he went on. Did he pull it out before climax? Mary blushed deeply and simply nodded her head. The blonde police officer nodded and told us he'd be right back. Wait, cried Mary, her eyes dark with fear. What are you going to do? Will you let me go home with Annalise? Please don't put me in a foster home, please. Her voice broke and her shoulders shook. We'll see what we can do, said the police officer, unsympathetically as he turned and marched off. After some time, a female deputy sheriff appeared and whisked Mary away to a private room behind the bulletproof glass. Robert and I were told to wait until somebody could take our statements. I decided to phone home and stepped outside to use the payphone. Jim answered almost immediately. We agreed that if John should come to the house, Jim should act very vague and tell John that I had gone into town on a quick errand and was probably already back at his camper with Mary. We had scarcely finished speaking when John arrived at the house. I hung up the phone feeling very afraid. I thought of my nine-year-old son and our neighbor Cody who had been living with us for almost a year, asleep in their beds while a potential psycho talked to the man I loved at the front door of our home. Back inside the station, I told Robert what was going on and that I was scared. He immediately got up and told the woman behind the glass and she promised to tell the deputy sheriff. Hours later, the female officer came in to interview us and Robert and I both told her what we had seen, heard and been told regarding Mary's abuse. She scribbled furiously in her notebook and complained about all the work she would have to do before she could go off duty. Oh, and I just talked to Child Protective Services, she said, and under no circumstances will Mary be allowed to go home with you. They're transporting her to a foster home until they can figure out what to do with her. My heart went tight with fear and fury. Why won't she be allowed to come home with me? I cried. Hasn't she gone through enough pain without being whisked off to a foster home? The deputy sheriff started to interrupt me, but I pushed on. 
Please, I urged. Send a police officer home with us. You can check out my home and see for yourselves that it's suitable and safe. I'll become a foster home. I'll do whatever it takes. Just please don't do this to her. The female officer held up her hand and shook her head. There's nothing I can do, she said. Now please, just wait here in case we need to ask you any more questions, okay? Hours later, after having tried repeatedly to find out what was going on, Robert and I decided to go home. We left our phone numbers with the woman behind the glass, asking her to call if they needed us. We arrived home at 1.30 a.m., and I was happy to find out from Jim that John had left almost immediately to go back home and wait for Mary. Jim said that John was pouring with sweat and looking very worried and nervous. Robert was just getting ready to go to his house when the phone rang. It was the sheriff's station asking if Robert could come back down. The detective in charge of Mary's case needed to speak to him. So I drove Robert the 12 miles back to the police station as his car was not legal. We had just re-entered the reception area when the detective came in. He pointed his finger at me. You, he said in a loud voice. You need to know that Mary's father has been told that Mary ran away from your custody, so you are off the hook. The detective turned to Robert. Follow me, please, he said, and they disappeared outside. I sat down, wondering how this message had been conveyed to Mary's father. Could I be sure I would not receive another visit from John in the middle of the night, perhaps this time with more serious consequences? I asked the woman behind the glass, but she could not answer any of my questions. About an hour later, Robert reappeared and I asked him where Mary and the detective were. They just took off in a police car. They're taking Mary to a safe house in Colton near San Bernardino, Robert replied. We walked outside to the car. As we were driving down the dark road home, Robert cleared his throat. Mary told them about us, he said. I turned to look at him in the shadows. What do you mean? I asked, puzzled. I mean she told them that we had sex the day before her 16th birthday, Robert replied. Is that true? I asked. Yes, it's true, he said, and looked out of the window. We drove down the dark road and reached home before too much longer. Are you going to jail? I finally asked. Yeah, probably, for having sex with a minor, Robert shook his head. Man, this has been a bad day. I'm just happy Mary's safe. Thanks for everything. I'll call you tomorrow. He drove off into the night in his truck. I went inside and fell asleep. It was 3.45 a.m. Early the next morning, Mary's father phoned and I acted like Mary had run away. I figured the police would tell you, I said. That's why I didn't contact you, because I thought you already knew. Well, why didn't you come and talk to me, he asked. The police came and picked me up this morning and I still don't know what the hell's going on. I didn't come and tell you because I lost your daughter and I was afraid you'd bite my head off, I exclaimed, sounding so sincere I surprised myself. Oh, baby girl, I would never hurt you, you know that. He crooned over the phone and I felt myself cringe inside. This man had been my friend, but he had done a terrible thing and I needed to protect Mary. Sounding as nonchalant as I could, I told him to let me know what happened and we hung up. 
I slept most of that day and the next night, feeling safe now that I knew John was in police custody. Late the next afternoon, I received a collect call from Mary. She told me that the authorities had been keeping her prisoner in a foster home. They wouldn't let her go to her grandmother's house. They wouldn't even let her call anyone, and she felt like she was being punished. So I ran away, she announced triumphantly, and my heart sank. I walked up to the first kind-looking Mexican man I could find, and he drove me to the Redlands Mall. So I'm miles away from that home I was in, and I doubt whether they even know I'm gone yet. She giggled, and I battled with complete hysteria for a moment at the thought of what could have happened to her. Now I don't know what to do, so I'm calling you, she concluded. I thought quickly and told her to call me back in 10 minutes. I had some phone calls to make. Then I phoned my friend Terry in Banning. Her husband answered, and when I told him the predicament, he immediately agreed to drive to the Redlands Mall, about 30 miles away, pick up Mary and take her back to his house. In the meantime, I contacted Mary's grandmother, who agreed to drive to Banning, about 100 miles away, and pick her granddaughter up from Terry's house. Mary lived with her grandma for less than a month because the old lady developed gallbladder problems that had to be operated on. The alternative living solution with her aunt was not a happy one. So I wasn't surprised when I received a phone call from Mary one morning at 6.30 a.m. She had run away from her alcoholic aunt's house and was in 29 Palms. Naturally, I dropped my life and drove down to pick her up. On the drive home, she told me she'd hitchhiked from Ludlow with the second truck driver she'd approached. The first driver, she'd asked, wanted a blowjob in exchange for the ride. She had spent the night in a ditch by the Kentucky Fried Chicken in 29 Palms. We smiled weakly when I observed in a shaking voice that she must have been keeping a legion of angels busy these last few weeks, watching over her safety and well-being. I called the authorities as soon as we arrived home because I wanted them to know Mary was safe. I also needed to find out if she could live with us. The detective I spoke to was very kind and helpful. He advised us to sit tight for a few days. By the end of the next week, we had full approval from the police department and child protective services for Mary to live with us. Normally, CPS would have placed her in foster care rather than send her home with an unrelated person like myself. But because Mary had run away twice, she was now labeled a habitual runaway and CPS had closed her case. With the help of CPS, Jim and I went on to become Mary's legal guardians. Her case supervisor was great. When she found out that Cody had been living with us for a year without the knowledge of the authorities, she turned to Cody and said, your worst nightmare is about to come true. She looked very stern. Cody's eyes went wide with fear. This one, she concluded, and smiled widely at him. You have an unconventional home life, she told all of us. But it's very loving, and you all obviously care very deeply for each other. You're already a family, and you don't need me to tell you that. So we became Cody's legal guardians, too. Sadly, Mary's beloved grandmother died shortly after Mary came to live with us but at least she died knowing that Mary was safe and very loved in her new home. Mary's father will be spending some time in prison. 
Robert spent a week in jail and is out on probation, under court order not to have any contact whatsoever with Mary until she turns 18. Mary no longer wants to marry him. Mary's new life seems filled with purpose and joy. She's going to school for the first time in four years, meeting new friends, working hard, and her eyes sparkle with mischief. Her brothers love her, and she loves them fiercely and protectively. She still has many surfacing memories and realizations, and sometimes she becomes sad. But for the most part, Mary is a happy girl, coping well with the challenges life has given her. I guess minors have no rights when they go into a police department. Mm-mm. No, um, she was in, you know, police protective custody. And under those terms, it's just assumed that that's the safest place for her to be. But um, I, the insensitivity just blows me away. I, I hope I it's... I was getting really pissed off. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I couldn't shout the words I was reading because then the dogs kept barking. <laughs> You're going to have to leave some of that in there. That was funny. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and sadly... Now, what yeah. year was this, uh, did this happen? This was in 1997. And it's 2021 now. Yes, so, so Mary went on and finished high school uh, at the age of 18, which was a miracle because her father had kept her out of school for five years. And um, and how did they not catch that? Because Mary is an unbelievable liar, and um, I don't mean that with any disrespect as a former victim of sexual abuse and adult assault, you just kind of become very loyal to the person who's um, abusing you, assaulting you, mainly out of fear that if you're not, you're going to get killed, which yeah. was very much the case in Mary's um, situation. Is her father dead now? or No, or we really thought he was, but just recently he popped up again in Nebraska where he had to sign in as a you know, child molester, uh, a sexual predator, and he's got to be deep into his 80s now. But that was a real blow for Mary, and for me, for that matter. He's a very scary man. Mm. But At um, least he's in Nebraska. Yes. Far, far away. Far, far away, yes. And what happened with Robert? What happened to Robert? Well, Robert, um, and Robert went on to become a tow truck driver, and he was sort of in our lives, um... We tried to make a garden at the community center in 2012, and he was very much involved in that. Um, and then, unfortunately, he'd had quite a few uh, bouts with all sorts of various cancer and has since died. Um, yeah, and he's, you know, again... He died young. He did. He was, he was, oh gosh, at least 15, 20 years younger than me. And, um, you know, he was a quirky desert resident, but he cared about his community. So he was actually a lot older than Mary. A lot they, How older. much older? I think he was 38 when she was 16. Oh, I know. Man, that poor little Mary. Yes. She was surrounded by, oh, I'm glad she didn't marry him. So anyway, um, Mary's, you know, leading a, a great life and, and recovering from all the mistakes and and uh, unfortunate situations of her life and um Cattell and I are doing well it's hellishly hot we had to record this very early in the morning so we wouldn't melt it's going to be 113 degrees today so wishing you heat sunshine and sand stay well neighbors